Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started as folks are coming in. Just, this is pretty casual. Just come on in, have a seat. I want to tell you before I get started, because we're going to finish our series on the modern Middle East uh, in this lesson, but next week, same time, same station, we will start a new series, and I want to tell you about it because I'll probably forget at the end. So I thought I'll do it now so I don't forget. I, here's, let me tell you something that's been on my mind a lot, and that is Christians, and there are a lot of us who feel this way, so I don't want anybody to feel bad about it, but Christians who feel like, you know, I read about the power in the New Testament and what Jesus said life was going to be like, but I wonder why I don't have that powerful, joyful, overcoming life that I've read about. In other words, I don't have that, and am I doing something wrong? And I don't want you to feel bad about that because that's not an uncommon thing, but there's a reason for that. And in our next series, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about uh, the times when instead of feeling joy, we feel stress. Instead of feeling confident, we feel like we don't measure up. Instead of feel like we're overcoming, we feel like we're overwhelmed. And there's a part of us that says, you know, wait a minute, I know that's not the full life, the full Christian life that had been offered. The book of James in the New Testament has some very straight talk, some very practical wisdom about that very question, that very issue, is how do we live that kind of overcoming life? So, in case I forget at the end to remind you, that's what we're going to start next week. And so in, if you know anybody like that or somebody that would like to just dive into the Scripture, and we're going to come up with just a handful of very practical things that will connect our thinking and our doing, because that's where the disconnect usually happens. And so money-back guarantee, the end of the next session, you will have no stress, overwhelm, overcoming life. I'm actually kind of serious. God did his part. If you do your part, it's going to work. Yeah. Just kidding. We, really, uh, this will make a difference in our lives. So we're going to go from Middle East, which has been great, and the things we've talked about, to just some really practical wisdom for, that we can take every Thursday morning when we leave here and say, I'm going to connect my thinking and doing and get in line with what God said. So enough about that, but I wanted to tell you that. And uh, Bring your friends. We've got plenty of seats here. And uh, Let's just join in this together and see if we can't end up with lives that are less stressed, more overcoming, instead of being overwhelmed. Don't forget to ask your questions. I know we don't answer all your questions. I apologize, but we'll do our very best to answer as many as we can. That's the, the uh, number for that. What we're trying to do in this series is we're looking at the modern Middle East, and we wanted to look at the politics, the economics, the ethnicity, the religion, and try to make some sense of it. I also really want to talk to you about what could God possibly be doing in this part of the world and with this kind of conflict. And that's where finally I think we, we've built up enough base to talk about that a little bit. So we've talked about Israel and Israel's situation. We talked about the Arab countries, if you remember. These are countries that the 22 Arab nations in the Arab League and we saw how they have some real challenges. They're not very stable institutions. There are a number of those states that are failing, and that's making a huge opportunity for turmoil. Turmoil on an unprecedented scale. I don't mean unprecedented in that there have been wars over there, but unprecedented in some very disturbing ways, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. We talked about uh, the Islamic world, and that's even greater. We talked about Shia and Sunni Muslims, 
and you begin to see the complexity. You have the national Arab governments and you have the religious organizations that really don't acknowledge that. You have within Islam, in the religion of Islam, you have the Sunnis and the Shia that have conflicts with each other. And I'm just going to remind you, the majority of the Muslim world is Sunni, about 88 or 89 percent, and about 10 or 11 percent Shiite. In this part of the Middle East, however, it's about one-third Shiite and two-thirds Sunni. The big Shiite Muslim countries are Iran, and now it's a Shiite-controlled government in Iraq. Iran has played its cards very well the past few years. And in Syria, Assad's regime is a Shiite-supported government as well. Other nations, and some of the big ones, the big players, are like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, Turkey's secular. Let's leave them out of the picture at the moment. Those are very strongly Sunni nations. And so there's conflict even within the Islamic world there. So we looked at all those factors. And then finally, we talked about terrorism. We talked about Islamism, which is a movement that tries to take a nation and turn it into an Islamic nation. I'll give you two examples. One is Iran, and I'm going to talk a lot more about Iran tonight because uh, that is an undervalued threat. They're just not in the news as much lately, but they will be. The other one is, for example, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is an Islamic state, and it doesn't really matter what the government is. They happen to have a monarchy, but the point is their law is Sharia law. In other words, it is the Koran and the associated traditions, etc. It is religious law is their governmental law and they are an Islamic nation. And so that's kind of the Islamists. You also see the jihadi movement, the jihadist movement, the struggle for a global Islam or a global caliphate, a global rule of a Muslim ruler. That's even a little different because it doesn't respect the national boundaries, and we've seen a lot more of that. That's what happens to be in the news right now. Movements like Boko Haram down in uh, North Africa, and you see, uh, obviously, ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State. There's all three names for the same organization. They aren't interested in national boundaries. They're interested in a more global caliphate, so a jihadist kind of movement. That's what we've talked about so far, so I won't bore you with that. I want to just move on. Actually, I do want to bore you with one thing. This was in the news this week. You know, the United States has obviously built a coalition, interesting little coalition, to attack ISIS, and in Iraq, that's pretty straightforward. In Syria, not quite so straightforward. And what you see happening is pretty interesting because in Syria, you have the government of Assad, which is basically Shiite, okay, Iran, Iranian-supported. You have an al-Qaeda affiliate, al-Nusra, so that's a Sunni organization, and you have the wild card ISIS, which is also Sunni, but wants to wipe out the other two. In other words, they're going to be global deal. And here's the dilemma. So the more we attack ISIS, the more we help Assad stay in power. If you remember, this is the guy that the United States said not very long ago at all, we're going to remove you from power. And now we find ourselves in the very awkward position of destroying the enemies of the Assad regime. So you can see how just complicated things get. 
You'll see uh, some of the Arab nations helping us in some really oblique ways because Sunnis don't like to fight Sunnis. But then a national government like Saudi Arabia has no desire to be taken over by ISIS. So my point in saying this is I'm hoping this starts to make more sense. And you see it's not quite so cut and dried, but at least we understand the forces that, that are working here. In this last series, what I want to talk about is what does the future hold? Is there a happily ever after in this story? And so let's start by talking about a couple of the views of people in the region. And we're going to talk about some politics, but I want to talk a lot more about people's worldview. When you start asking the question of how do you see this playing out, usually it's not just a political answer or an economic answer. It comes more from their deeper values. And you're going to see religion playing a much bigger part. Let's start with Israel. I won't talk about them very much, but on a political side, here's how Israel sees this thing playing out. Israel wants one thing. They want the right to exist and live peacefully. Um, I'm not making a political statement when I say that, that, oh, they're good guys, the other guys are bad guys. I'm simply saying Israel's goals aren't huge. Israel is not particularly interested, unlike Iran, by the way. Israel isn't interested in having huge influence in the Middle East or taking over any of the neighbors, they are fighting on a more subsistence level of, we just want to exist. Their problem is, look at the state of Israel right now. You have the Gaza Strip on the left of the map, which is occupied, it's Palestinian territory. Hamas rules there. You see the West Bank, see where Jerusalem and Hebron are? It's on the West Bank of the Jordan River, even though it's on the east side of the nation of Israel, but that's the West Bank area. That's also Palestinian area, controlled by a coalition, Hamas-Palestinian Authority coalition. So Israel has within it this inherent tension of, quote, native peoples, people who want a Palestinian state, and Israel itself. And you've seen Israel vacillate between trading land for peace. There's been this big push, and it's a long story, so I'm not going to go through the history of it, of can we have a two-state solution? Israel, depending on the prime minister at the time, is open to a two-state solution. Some are, some aren't. Some say, no, the West Bank is ours. That's where all the Bible happened, by the way, is in the West Bank area. All the names of those towns are all over the Old Testament. And so they say, no, that's ours. Others say, look, it's either trade some land for peace or have no peace at all. And so Israel's wrestling with how can I have a territorial integrity and what will I have to give up? It, they're not willing to give anything up at the moment because they at least want the people they're negotiating with to acknowledge their right to exist. Why? What's Israel's number one goal? I would like a peaceful right to exist here. So politically, Israel continues to look for somebody to negotiate with that will acknowledge that. Huge progress has been made, by the way, in the last 40 years. Israel and Egypt just teamed up against Hamas. That would have been unthinkable 40 years ago. So some of the nations particularly Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Egypt, have come to terms with the idea that it's unlikely that we're going to wipe out Israel. So let's find another way. That's not, however, just able to happen at the time being. But I want to give you an idea of Israel's end game. How does Israel see the end of the world playing out? How do they see their destiny? Probably one of the great passages of Scripture to sum that up is this. A nice little passage from Isaiah. God says, behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Now, Christians read this differently, but as a Jew, you say, it's going to be a new world order. Former things won't be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 
Be glad, rejoice in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people to be a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. In a Jewish mindset, and understand, there are a lot of different sects of the Jews, but big picture, Jews understand their destiny in a very geographic way, in the sense that the land of Israel is a promised land. Jerusalem is God's dwelling place. God's promises are not tied just to them as a people or to them spiritually, which is how you as Christians think about the promises. They think the promises go with the real estate, right? And so the nation of it, it's, you, it's not like you could take the Jews and say, okay, hey, I'll tell you what, we got some really good land over here in North Dakota that no one's arguing about, and we'll just give it to you, right? You guys can all come and live in North Dakota, and that'll be the Jewish homeland, and nobody's going to fight you, right? That's not going to work because it's more than just a Jewish homeland. It's that piece of real estate because their, their view of the end times, their eschatology, how things play out at the end, is very tied to this piece of real estate. Make sense? That's really what's driving Israel. It's not terribly complicated. Existence, oh, and unfortunately, existence here. Ah, there's the catch. The Arabs don't really have a problem with Israel existing, just not anywhere in my neighborhood, right? Just feel free to take them somewhere else. So therein lies Israel's kind of view, politically and religiously. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the uh, Islamists and the jihadists a little bit. Two different kinds of organizations, basically. I'm painting with a broad brush. But you have organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah to, to the various Al-Qaeda affiliates. And their goal fundamentally has been to ignite the Muslim world against Israel and America, too, would be fine. And, you know, the West would also be good, but specifically against Israel. So you see Hezbollah traditionally up in Lebanon and then also in Iraq. But if you remember, not very long ago, Hezbollah was firing rockets out of Lebanon into Israel. Not very long ago at all, Hamas is firing rockets out of the Gaza Strip into Israel. Neither one of them, and by the way, Hezbollah, you may not remember this far back, but Hezbollah successfully goaded Israel into invading Lebanon. Major mistake politically for Israel in hindsight. Israel's smarter. They didn't invade the Gaza Strip in any significant way. I mean, if you remember the Lebanon thing, it, it was long, it was difficult, very difficult. And when Israel dealt with Hamas this time, they had an ally in Egypt. But fundamentally, those organizations aren't trying to destroy Israel. They, they can't destroy Israel. You're not going to fire those little rockets and destroy Israel. What they want to do is provoke a response from Israel that ignites the Muslim world. So you put your rockets in schools, Israel strikes back, plaster all over the news, oh my gosh, these Israelis are killing children. That's a strategy. And the reason is, I want you to understand the aim. The aim is, is to, Hamas can't defeat Israel, but maybe the whole Muslim world can. And so the strategy has been in, in those organizations to draw all of Islam into a war with Israel and the West. That's why you'll see every president we had, not just this one, very careful 
to frame what we are doing in the Middle East as not us versus Islam, the religion of Islam, because you don't want that to be successful. You don't want everybody to say, look, we aren't really, you know, the Muslim world can say, we're not crazy about some of these organizations like ISIS and Hamas either, but hey, they're fellow Muslims, you can't you can only go so far. In other words, you don't want to draw all of Islam into war. So you'll see America very much resist that. But the other interesting development, as these governments get weak, and everything from Libya to obviously Syria, uh, some of the other na uh, Muslim nations around Iraq, of course, Afghanistan, Pakistan is not necessarily weak, but certainly porous. When you see that happening, you see another movement. And that's the jihadist movement. Those are the people like ISIS, people like Iran. They have much bigger goals in mind than just inciting a big old war against Israel and the West. They have the idea of wanting to unite the whole Muslim world and conquer the rest of the world for Islam. Their goals are so much bigger than that. They are taking advantage of opportunities, political and economic opportunities in this part of the world to advance a much bigger agenda. Does that make sense? They're fueled by two things. One, political and economic. In other words, we're going to unite Islam into the caliphate, the global thing. Think Ottoman Empire. Think big global uh, Islamic empire conquering a great part of the world. They're also fueled, though, by their religious views of the end times. So let me focus on Iran for just a minute, Iran for just a minute, because they're a perfect example of what ISIS wants to do the same thing, so do some of these other organizations, but Iran is the leading candidate in being able to actually carry this out. Let me give you a quote, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about, from the supreme leader of the nation of Iran. It's Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, and this, we'll parse this a little bit, but I want you to see, this is just last year he said this. He said the final goal, what is Iran's view of how things play out in the Middle East? The goal is nothing less than creating a brilliant Islamic civilization. All parts of the Islamic Ummah, remember I told you the Ummah is the vision in the Quran and that Muhammad had of the unity of all Muslims, regardless of their ethnicity or what country you live in, that that trumps your national origin, is the fact that you're Muslim. So the Ummah, think of it like the global church to Christians. You know, the church is we're all connected by our faith. That's kind of the Ummah. He says that all parts of Islamic Ummah, in other words, every Muslim everywhere, in the form of different nations and countries, should achieve the civilizational position that has been specified in the Holy Quran. In other words, remember, Muhammad comes bursting and Islam comes bursting out of the Arabian Peninsula, and what do they do? They conquer huge part of Europe and Asia, and everybody's going to be Muslim. In other words, the Quran talks about the whole world is one big Muslim country's the wrong word. One big Muslim civilization. That's the vision of the ruler of Iran. He says, through religious faith, knowledge, ethics, and constant struggle, jihad. Translate that, jihad. Islamic civilization can gift advanced thought to the whole Islamic world. In other words, 
I know that we Iranians are Shiite, and there's a bunch of you Muslims that are Sunnis, but what we're doing is going to give a gift to the all Muslims everywhere by uniting them. If you're a Saudi Arabia citizen, this makes you as nervous as it does America. But he says, we're going to do the whole Islamic world a favor and give you these advanced thoughts and codes of behavior, translate, Sharia law, Taliban style, this is the way society works, to the whole Imamah and all of humanity. And it can be the point of liberation from materialistic and oppressive outlooks and corrupt codes of behavior that form the pillars of current Western civilization. Translated, the mission, the vision of Iran is to unite the entire Muslim world under their understanding of the Quran and law and to completely conquer the corrupt West. That's it. That is their goal. That is what they understand the Quran to say, and that is their goal. That's what ISIS's goal is. That's what all those states, Islamic State movements, are trying to do. Iran's probably actually in the best position to make this happen. ISIS is having their heyday right now, and time will tell whether or not they're as easy to stop as we seem to think they are. But Iran is holding a lot of interesting cards. Uh, President Ahmadinejad, Rouhani's president now, but just back a little bit to the Bush era, back in 06 or 07, Ahmadinejad sent a letter to President Bush at that time. Kind of, it, was, it was kind of talking down to him like, hey, let me just tell you what real civilization looks like. And you'll probably remember it, having read it. But one thing that you didn't get told is the last line of that letter says this, peace only to those who follow the true path. It's kind of a little postscript at the end. That's exactly what the Prophet Muhammad said, exactly word for word what Prophet Muhammad said to the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire right before they waged holy war and conquered them. My point to you is, is that you don't have to be a genius to realize Iran is playing out not just a political economic move, like Russia and China, which I'll get to in a minute, they're also playing out a religious vision of how the world's supposed to play itself out. Does that make sense? That's a key thought, because politics and economics play a big part of this, but it's not the whole story. Uh, negotiate, and hence, Iran and nuclear weapons. Let's talk about that for just a second. Why does Iran want nuclear weapons? Well, it's a smart move geopolitically because they'd have more influence in the region because Saudi, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, they're all scared to death of Iran getting a nuclear weapon. They know what Iran's all about. They're fellow Muslims, but they're not exactly the same brand. And they're a little concerned about Iran conquering the whole Muslim world. Iran getting a nuclear weapon is good economically and geopolitically for them but it's also good uh, in another way for them, and that is their vision of how the world plays out. Because the vision, the Islamic vision of how the world ends, a little bit similar to Christians, which I'll get to in a minute, but it involved big-time war. So, for example, when the world started trying to talk Iran out of making a nuclear weapon about 10 years ago, they had 130 centrifuges. You know how many they have now? 19,000. I mean, the point is, is that Iran will not be deterred. Not just, not through simple economic and political sanctions. Because this isn't just economic and political to Iran. There's a bigger vision of playing out the end times. 
So let me talk about the end times from an Islamic point of view and specifically from a Shiite, Iranian Shiite point of view. You remember I talked to you about the difference between Shia and Sunni is the succession after Muhammad. And that the Shiites understand that Ali, who wasn't the first Imam, the first successor to Muhammad, but it's the first one they recognize because he was related to Muhammad. In fact, they think there have only been 12 of those Imams through that lineage. And the 12th Imam is a guy named Muhammad al-Mahdi, and he lived back, way, way back. This is down the 8th century. I mean, this is 1,200 years ago. And when he was four years old, because there were some Muslims fighting Muslims at the time, Sunni, Shia fighting at the time, he went, it was put into hiding, and he's never been seen since. And so that brings this tradition of the Mahdi, this last imam. Sunnis have a vision of this too. And the vision of it is, is that he is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to set the world right for Islam, for the religion of Islam. And so they understand that their end times involve a hero, the Mahdi, coming back to unite Muslims, and they'd love it if they go ahead and just conquer the Muslims and get everybody together and say, we're ready. In fact, some Muslims think as soon as we can all get our act together here and become an Islamic caliphate, the Mahdi will come and then we'll just go conquer the world. It's going to be a big battle and conquer the world. So the Mahdi is a very powerful image. And here uh, he's called the rightly guided one or the one that will be revealed, a lot of different names. But here are the uh, signs of the Mahdi coming back. He's a messianic figure. He's going to come back, and he's going to bring justice to the world and restore true Islam. Right? He'll appear with a loud cry from the skies. You're going to hear a lot of New Testament imagery in this because Muhammad had read the New Testament. He'll be a descendant of Muhammad and Ishmael, of course. His name will be Muhammad. He'll emerge from Mecca, a holy site in Saudi Arabia. But he'll establish a kingdom in Iraq. He's going to fight alongside Isa, who is Jesus. That's the Arabic for Jesus. And he's going to fight against a guy named Al-Jajal. Al-Jajal is the think antichrist. So in Muslim eschatology, Muslim view of how the world plays out in the end, there's an antichrist. Guess who their leading candidate is? You, pretty much. There's going to be this figure, this great Satan, the West. You know, there's going to be a figure who is trying to destroy Islam. Jesus is going to come and say, oh, all you Christians, you have totally misunderstood this. I'm a Muslim, and you guys need to be Muslims too. So he's going to come back, and the Mahdi's going to come, and he and Jesus are going to lead an army, and they're going to go literally, go, Muslims, get your AK-47s and let's go. We're going to go have a big old war, and we're going to conquer the world. That's, the, that's kind of how they see this playing out. So they're going to fight together, beat the Antichrist. He'll correct all the false practices in Islam, and Jesus is going to correct all of our misunderstandings about Christianity. Then he's going to rule seven years, and then there's going to be a judgment day. Okay, that's a really short version, but that's how Shiites in particular, Sunnis really similarly, see how things are going to play out. Well, if you're Iran, that's your destiny. Destiny is for Islam to rule the world. I mean, in other words, everybody's going to become a Muslim. Allah's going to be glorified on the whole earth, and we're going to do it with military power led by this great leader. Do you understand why Iran wants a nuclear weapon? They need to be a nuclear power. It's part of this overarching vision. 
That's why Iran is trying to effectively take over Iraq. I mean, it really undermined American efforts to stabilize Iraq because an unstable Iraq is good for Iran. And you know what? It's worked out pretty well. Syria, other nations come next. So Iran's playing out not just a geopolitical agenda. Iran's playing out a very religious agenda here as well. The end, uh, one more thing and then we'll pause uh, for questions about this because I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff. But I wanted you to show this is the sixth imam, successor after Muhammad. Again, we're now... Uh, 1,300 years ago, before the appearance of the one who will rise, the end-time guy, people will be reprimanded for their disobedience. In other words, we're going to shape up the Muslims. What do you think ISIS thinks they're doing? You know, they're going through and they're beheading Muslims, children, women, whatever, Taliban. Who are they punishing? Who's Hamas punishing? Are there Muslims as well? They're going to shape up Islam and make sure everybody toes the line just right. There's going to be death will occur, fear come over the people, you know, blood in the sky. In other words, it's a violent end. It's a big battle. This is really key to that. So what do you see happening in the Middle East? You see ISIS, for example, I'll just pick on them for a second. They don't shy away from doing whatever is necessary, however violent it may be, because their view of the end times is this is how... Allah is going to affect the end of the world. It's a holy war. They're doing something that plays out their destiny. It's not just we want to conquer. Well, it's probably a lot of that too. I'm a little cynical. I think you just have an awful lot of thugs who are just really evil people who are just murderers. But there is a core idea there of we're actually doing something holy here. And that sounds crazy to us, but that's it. So ISIS, Iran, kind of playing out those visions so there's a heavy religious element here. Israel, I want to exist, and I want to exist here because God made some promises. Muslim world, we're going to destroy you. The world is going to end with a big battle, and we Muslims are going to win, and so we are arming, and violence is not a foreign thing. It is part of our eschatology. Let me pause there. And so as these things play out, you should expect more violence. Questions? And then I want to get into some geopolitics, and then let's talk about the Christians in this, this thing. Well, the most popular question of the night is, are the majority of American Muslims Sunni or Shiite? Uh, you know, I don't know that I have a stat on I'm going to guess Sunni. Uh, actually, that's not guess. I'll just tell you. It's very, very likely Sunni, but I don't know that I've seen any stats. There may be stats on that. I just haven't seen it. But I suspect Sunni because... 89, roughly 89% of the Muslim world is Sunni. What are the Islam's, uh, Islamic view of China and India? Islamic view of China and India on several levels. One, geopolitically, uh, China and India have not that direct relationships. They have economic relationships. But religiously, India is largely Hindu. China is largely not atheistic. And in both of those countries, there are Muslim minorities that have been brutally suppressed. And there's, con there's conflict between Muslims and Chinese, Muslims and uh, Hindus in India as well. They would see those two nations as nations that need to become Muslim and that eventually will come into the fold through the sword or, or accepting it. So on a religious ground, they're just heathens. They just don't happen to be the focus. They've done a pretty good job of of staying out of it, largely because you got the Israel-America problem right in front of you. But sooner or later, Islam has a religious issue with them as well. 
Do Christian dispensationalists think that the promises to the Jews are tied to the real estate as well? Yeah, and I'm probably not going to get into dispensationalism specifically, but I will talk to you about Christian view because I want to contrast it a little bit with Islam. But just to answer that specific question, basically, yes, Christian dispensationalists do see uh, a very key role not only to the Jews but to the real estate, even to the extent of needing the temple to be rebuilt. Yes, that's the short answer to that question. Okay, you, you have said that radical Muslims are setting the agenda for Islam, but the Arab Spring was mostly moderate Muslims overthrowing oppression. So do we see that as a sign that moderate Muslims are gaining strength? Uh, yeah, I'll actually take issue. That's a very good question, but I'm going to take a little issue with that. The Arab Spring was not a moderate Muslim movement. Uh, the Arab Spring was largely a secular movement. And let's just take Egypt as an example because that's one that's played out and I can tell you the end of that story because it's far enough along. Here's what happened in Egypt. You get a lot of secular people who are rebelling against an Egyptian government that they believe is economically oppressive and not being led well. It's not really a religious argument in Egypt. Muslim Brotherhood comes along and says, hey, I want to join you guys because I have real issues with them too. And if you want me to say it's civil rights and other things, happy to. Muslim Brotherhood's agenda has always been, this is going to be an Islamic nation. But they all band together. You get economic, this is very, very much political. There are economic issues, there's oppression, there's a lack of freedom. So what you saw there was not a moderate Muslim. I mean, there were moderate Muslims in the movement, but it was largely a secular movement. So what happens? So they knock off the Egyptian government. And so you get all these factions come together. And that's when it dawns on the secular movements and some moderate movements. The strong player at the table is guess who? Muslim Brotherhood. And these guys are not secular. They have an image of ruling Egypt just as strongly, just as oppressively in the secular person's mind as the other government. Guess who wins? The people who are best organized, the Muslim Brotherhood. You get a Muslim Brotherhood president, and what starts happening? I'm just giving you the last two or three years of history here, just in a nutshell. What starts happening? Islamic law, start oppressing people, everybody says, but they oppress them very effectively. Like, we aren't having a revolt, right? And so they don't have a revolt. In the end, the military comes in, boots out the Muslim Brotherhood, and who's running the country now? Military, a secular military. So my point is this, is, is that came about very politically happening, but it turns out that the most powerful player were the radical Muslims in that thing. And I think you're going to see that play out through the entire area. I'm going to argue that you'll see that play out through the entire area. That's a good question. Is Putin a Muslim? Putin is not a Muslim. Putin has directed vicious campaigns against Muslim separatists. I mean, ruthlessly suppressed Islam. And yet, Russia's pretty good ally of some of these Muslim nations. Because it's not all religious. There's geopolitics in here, too. But no, he's not. Is there a piece of land that is central to the Muslim faith the way Jerusalem is to the Christian faith, and is it Iraq? Uh, good question. The, the area that's central to the Muslim faith, number one, 
Saudi Arabia, where Mecca and Medina are. Number two, it's really the third most holy site, but basically number two, Jerusalem. And therein lies our problem. Ishmael is the one who inherits that land, according to Muslims. No, it's Isaac, say the Jews. So, yes, that piece, same piece of real estate that the Jews want is also very holy, very important to the Muslims. Second only to little, Saudi Arabia is the keeper of the Mecca and Medina, where Muhammad himself was born. And so that leads us to the next question, which is, Abraham asked God to bless Ishmael, and God agreed and said he would make him a great nation. Was the Ottoman Empire the fulfillment of that prophecy, or is the caliphate? Yeah, good question. Ethnically, what most people think is if you go back into Genesis 25, you'll see the sons of Ishmael, and they become the 12 tribes of Arabia. Think Saudi Arabia. This is way, 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 way back, time of, of, of Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ. Think Muhammad, 570 years after Christ. So they go, they become the tribes of Saudi Arabia, and they become a great nation of the Arabian people. And so they come bursting out of there. And there's always been tension between these people and the Jews, the, the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of Isaac. So they come bursting out of there, though, with a rival claim to the land based on the birthright. So the Ottoman Empire is an Islamic creation. Ishmael's descendants are the Arabs. Now, the Arabs become Muslims, and so it kind of comes together, but really it's the Arabian people, Arab people. Okay? Well, let's move on, because I want to talk to you about two other things. One, briefly, because I just haven't talked enough about them. What about Russia and China? They make this even more interesting, and interesting in a really bad way. Russia... All right, now you got the world map, so we've zoomed out. America is very entwined in the Middle East because without American support, Israel ceases to exist overnight. Just don't have the capability to do this without allies. We are their number one, far and away, biggest, staunchest ally. So America has a vested interest. America's trying to have some kind of reasonable relationship with the Arabs while supporting Israel. America is somehow trying not to offend global Islam because it's not an American goal to destroy Muslims around the world, at the same time defending the very people they're trying to destroy. And so America has a very difficult time here. America is interested in more stability because America thinks we can work with nations, we cannot work with fanatics. So America has, has had some success with Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Jordan beginning to learn to maybe come to some kind of peaceful coexistence with Israel. Maybe that's a possibility. But you can't do that with Al-Qaeda or ISIS or any of those kinds of organizations. Those kinds of organizations thrive where the governments are weak. And so Afghanistan falls, and guess what? You've got all these fanatic, radical Muslim groups coming out of there that cannot be reasoned with. And so we have a vested interest in stabilizing Afghanistan. We have an interest in stabilizing Pakistan. We have a vested interest in getting Iraq to be a country that doesn't harbor terrorists, state-sponsored terrorism. We are very opposed to Iran strategically because they would be happy to train terrorists and turn them loose. Serves their short-term purposes, right? Stir the world up for Islam. So America, very complicated position. So America is very tied down in the Middle East. So what's Russia doing? Stir the pot. 
When you get vetoes in the Security Council, when America's trying to do sanctions against some of these things, guess who vetoes it? Russia and China. Because it doesn't serve their purposes, their strategic purposes. So while America's in the middle of what they're doing, what do you think Russia's doing? Pick up the newspaper. What, what have they been doing lately? Let's go west. Ukraine's in the uh, crosshairs right now, right? Russian expansionism. America's not strong enough to to get out of the Middle East and out of those entanglements and do anything really effective. And I'm not criticizing the government, I'm just making the obvious statement. Nothing effective has been done to slow Russia down. Why? We're tied up with the pot. Russia's got one hand stirring the Middle East. For example, Russia's not any part of fighting against ISIS. In fact, Russia, when we bombed Syria, you'll see in the paper today, said that was an illegal act. The Syrian government didn't approve that, and so we're going to have some trouble in the UN. That's coming, trust me. They're going to go, why is America attacking a nation without asking the government of that nation? What are they doing? Stir that pot, and in the meantime, go west. You see a lot of NATO countries, our president recently went there, to reassure people like Belarus, Latvia, Estonia, all the others right along that line, hey, we are with you. They're like, yeah, but we're getting a little nervous because we see Russian troops in Ukraine. So you see Russia taking advantage of that to pursue their geopolitical ends, not even slightly religious, very pragmatic. We want a Russian empire, we gotta get the US tied down, we're going after it. China, don't have enough time to talk about China, but China is a fascinating country. But what China mostly wants, they'd be happy to stir that pot too because US get out of the way, Russia peacefully coexisting for the moment. China's going the other direction. China's trying to control, I mean, trying to get their economy together. They want to be a superpower. They see themselves, their view of the end of the world is not religious, it's cultural. The predominant culture in the world want everybody else just to be in awe of China, and China's going to be a world leader. China's focusing on the South China Sea, that whole Pacific Rim area. China's moving and extending its influence into those countries and those nations. You'll see them being very aggressive with Taiwan. You'll see them very aggressive in the politics of uh, Vietnam and Thailand and that whole South China Sea area. They want to dominate that area as part of their empire. They wouldn't use that word, but that's what's happening. So Russia and China are comfortable with an unstable Middle East. They're able to make alliances with the Arab and Muslim countries because they don't hate them as much as they hate us, right? And they're using that to, do the, to further their own geopolitical aims in the world. Okay, I just haven't talked about them much, but very opportunistic, very much pursuing their ends. Their ends just don't happen to be religious, how the world ends kind of thing. It's like, how big can we get, and what is our destiny of our culture? Putin has an idea of what the destiny of the Russian people is. China has always had an image of what is the destiny of the Chinese people. Muslims have an idea of the destiny is we're going to rule the world, and it's going to be a violent deal to get there. Does that make sense? Now, let's throw the Christians in, all right? This will be interesting. So what is God doing in the Middle East? What could God possibly be doing in the Middle East, and how does this play in any sense into, uh, forget the geopolitics for a minute, how do Christians understand and make any sense out of what's happening here? Let's talk about Christian eschatology just a little bit, how we think the world ends. Here's a statement from Jesus, Matthew 24. Plenty of things we could quote, but just in the interest of time, this is a good one. As Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came and said, 
Uh, when will this happen? What will be the signs of your coming, the second coming of Christ, and the end of the age? In other words, how's this play out? How does this story end? How does the world end? When judgment coming? So Christians have an idea of the coming of Christ and judgment. How's that going to play out? Now, this is an interesting little passage, uh, whether you think it's talking about the fall of Jerusalem or the end times or both, which that's my view clearly, uh, saying here, listen, many will come in my name claiming I'm the Christ and deceive you. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars, but do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. All these are beginnings of the birth pains of something God's going to do. In other words, the Christian vision isn't God's going to come and conquer the world like Muslim, and we're just all going to live happily ever after as Christians. That the turmoil in the world are actually, think of it like birth pains, and God's giving birth to something completely new. That's really different than the, than the Muslim idea of what's going to happen at the end of the world. Even though in the book of Revelation, now let's go and let's talk about something we do have in common, Christians understand that these birth pains will be temporally, meaning physically, geopolitically, economically, violent. That is not the end goal. It is simply the birth pains to get to what God wants to do. It's more predictive than causal. It isn't saying God wants a big old war. It just says there are going to be wars because humanity is who they are. The Middle East is what it is. But there's something bigger going on. It's not Russia's agenda or China's agenda or Islam's agenda. This is God using the birth pains to birth something new. And so you see this vision of Armageddon. You see this idea of acknowledging conflict at the end. Uh, heaven's open. There's Jesus, uh, faithful and true. The armies of heaven are following him. Notice it's not the armies of Christians. Get your AK-47s. Let's go fight people. That is not a Christian view of the end of the world. Jesus Christ will prevail, not Christians with guns. That's just a very different image. He's going to bring the judgment of God to the world. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This end story is all about Jesus Christ, not about Christians conquering the world. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. We think there's an antichrist. There are forces opposed to God. They're rebelling in this world. Look at the Middle East. What do you see? All kinds of people in rebellion against the truth of God. The beast is captured, the false prophet, thrown into the lake of fire. Then you have judgment time, etc., and then you go see this new heaven, new earth, what God is going to create. So the idea for Christians is somewhat similar to Islam, but instead of it being a means to conquer the world, God's more saying, I know, I know who you guys are, and the Middle East is just a little microcosm of humanity. This is what humanity is really like. And you may say, Terry, I'm not like ISIS. I'm not out beheading people. We are inherently sinful and in rebellion to God. And that's what you see playing out in the Middle East of whatever stripe you see there. You see self-interest, national interest, religious interest, economic interest, people fighting against others. Try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Go behead a fellow Muslim. What you see there is a microcosm of the world. God says... If you think there won't be violence, given this is what the world is like, you're crazy. So here's my first prediction. I feel pretty safe. You will see more wars. You will not see a stable Middle East, and don't expect it. And if I'm proved wrong, I'd be happy to be proved wrong. But my reading of the scripture is that that's extremely unlikely. 
two reasons. Human beings are who they are. And number two, God is working a purpose even through the depravity of human beings. The violence of the Middle East has been predicted a long time ago and served God's purposes. One of the really curious things, regardless of your variety of Christian view of the end times, is this. God has used from very early days the Jewish people, and more specifically, that little piece of real estate. I mean, stop and think about it. Why in the world is Israel, the nation of Israel, so important? They got no oil. They got nothing particularly interesting over there. Israel is important because God made it important. God decided to take this group of people, nothing special about them. He just said, I'm going to show the world that I can take you guys, and you're pretty scrubby, you know, kind of JV team. I'm going to make you into somebody that can represent me to the world. That's the story of the Jews. It's a glorious story. He says, I'm going to give you this land right here. What's so great about this land? Nothing, and that's the point. And I'm going to use this geography to influence the world. And let's face it, you look at the Middle East and you say, would this be happening without the Bible? Would this be happening without God influencing the world through the Jews? Of course not. None of this would be happening. Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't man's destiny to cause this. God started this by what he picked and who he did. It would be crazy to think that he won't continue to use that little piece of geography to play out his story. And so I think, regardless of your view of where the Jews play in the end of the world, I think it's ironic and just perfectly fitting to me that that little piece of geography is a key part of the end of the world. I really do think that it's not only a spiritual story, Revelation is also a physical story. It says, hey, you see violence in the Middle East? Exactly. God is going to work through that piece of geography and that violence to do something far, far bigger. Does that make sense? That's not the Islamic view, but I think that's a really healthy Christian view of understanding what's happening in the Middle East. Is it just greed and politics and economics and religion? Yeah, I mean, that's the proximate cause people doing bad things to people. But is there any sense happening here? Yes, there is. There's a bigger purpose coming through this. God's going to take the worst situation you can imagine. And trust me, you know now how complicated the Middle East is. If you're the peace negotiator, what do you do? You resign. That's a hopeless job. <laughs> My point is, take the most hopeless situation you can imagine and watch what God does with it. That's what is written in the Bible 2,000 years ago. It says, watch this play out. And as Christians, my, my th my, really, my encouragement to you is this, don't be discouraged. This story doesn't end well in the sense that it doesn't end comfortably. It ends very badly for the bad guys. But in the end, it's like giving birth. We too will see pain in the sense that the ISISs of the world and difficulties, but we get to see the new creation that gets birthed. That is a very, I know it sounds crazy, Christians ha actually have a very optimistic view of the Middle East. Not optimistic in the short run, like people will automatically start treating each other right. We're not that naive. We would be shocked if people start treating each other right in the Middle East. We expect this. We're just optimistic because we know God's bigger than that, and he's going to bring something brilliant out of it. Question? We have time yeah. for a couple of those. I just have one right now. Good. Um, where do the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, fit in, and where are they now? Well, you know, uh, they fit in really interesting in the New Testament era because Herod was an Edomite. 
uh, and Herod was a great little antichrist figure. I mean, he tried to destroy Jesus, etc. The historic enmity between the Edomites and the Israelites played itself out really well in that story. You just see it graphically. You're seeing it graphically in the Middle East right now as the enmity between Ishmael and Isaac playing itself out. But as far as where the Edom is south, thinks in a southerly direction from Israel, and the Edomites as a people don't exist in the sense that they're so intertwined in history they don't exist as an ethnic people. So they're effectively gone. And, and that happened to a lot of ethnic people. Uh, groups throughout history. It's very common. It's a miracle it didn't happen to the Jews. And they, they didn't become Arabs? Uh, no, not specifically, no. Good question. Well, so tying that up, I know that it's not comforting to walk out and go, gee, I thought we were going to have the key to peace in the Middle East. <laughs> there isn't going to be peace in the Middle East. And I'm not trying to be a, a cynic and I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm just trying to be a realist and say, now that you understand this, there won't be an enduring peace for so many reasons that you now know why. My point is that as a Christian, we probably have the most realistic view of the world and the most optimistic view of the world, is that we don't look at the Middle East and go, oh my goodness, this is what a waste, what a shame. Gee, mankind must be something less than what we expected. We look at the Middle East and say, it's unbelievable how depraved human beings are that we do this to each other, and yet we do. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, we will be reborn, and by the grace of God, the world will see something new. That makes sense? So be optimistic about it, but don't think it's going to get better. Not for a while. Well, I appreciate your attention. I hope that helps you read the newspapers, and I really would like you to take an optimistic view. Next week, how to live a life of power. Let's go from geopolitics to how can I get along with my boss and the guy's making me crazy. We're going to deal with that next week. See you guys.